0: Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks Downloadable Messages and Podcast. Well, good morning. How are you today? All right. Most of you are good. Good to know it. Hey, are you enjoying summer? It's finally here, right? The heat has upon us. Well, today we are going to be continuing in our series in Proverbs. And so if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've been diving into Proverbs, taking a look at these wise sayings given by Solomon, and we'll see some other Proverbs from other people along the way, of these principles for how to live life, how God has designed life to be lived. And it's been a great journey so far, hasn't it? Yeah, Yeah, it's been fun to learn together what it means to choose to live a wise life. And today, as we continue in this series, we're going to start looking at some specific things today. And so today we're going to be taking a look at the ideas of pride and humility, and how we have a choice in the attitude in which we can live. And so let me ask you a question. Have you ever known that person who is very full of themselves, just so full of pride? Have you ever known someone like that? I mean you're not the point if they're here, but I mean, have you known someone like that? <laughs> Yeah, isn't it interesting, that person, because they just think they're the center of the universe. You know what's really frustrating and annoying about somebody like that? I mean, just try and envision that person for a moment. Here's the frustration, is that you know you're a better person than them, don't you? (laughs) And we kind of laugh, and then all of a sudden it's kind of this nervous laugh because, hey, they might not be the only person who has an issue with pride in their life, right? And so we're going to take a look at this together. We're going to tackle both sides of this, pride and humility, because pride is one of those things that's so obvious to see in another person's life and so difficult to pinpoint in our own life because it's a subtle thing. And so let's jump off, or let's start off, let's, let's jump in. Let's look at a few Proverbs here. They're on your message notes. I just have three Proverbs to get us started looking at both pride and humility. And so here's the first one to dive into today, Proverbs 21, 24. It says this, it says the proud and arrogant man, mocker is his name. He behaves with overweening pride. That over, the word overweening means like exuberant pride. So he's an arrogant, arrogant man. And now what's interesting about this proverb is there's no indictment against the proud man. It's just kind of the statement. And so here's what we need to understand: this is not one of those verses that you want to put on your mirror. And be like, okay, so this is the one I'm supposed to live out today. Like, so today I'm going to be mocker. Yeah, no, this is kind of one of those things that's so obvious. Like, this is not who you want to be. Like, you, nobody wants to be mocker. None of us like that guy. So look at this other proverb now. Proverbs 11:2. It says this. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes Wisdom. And so we're looking in this book of wisdom, trying to figure out how do we grow in wisdom in our lives, and here's one of the things that we learn. If you want to grow in wisdom in your life, then you need to learn to choose to embrace humility, because if you continue in an attitude of pride, you're setting yourself up against the ability to grow in wisdom. And then Proverbs 22, 4, it says this, humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor in life. And if you remember the first week of the series, Mike really helped us helped unpack that idea of what does it mean when the Proverbs talk about the fear of the Lord, how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and how when we humble ourselves before God and we acknowledge who He is in life, that's what sets us up for success in life. That's what sets us up to experience the life that God wants to lead us into. And so we see in these few Proverbs here that we have a choice in our attitudes of how we can live. We can embrace pride or we can embrace humility. And so as we get started, I'd like to spend some time kind of unpacking the first part of this pride and talking about the problem with pride, that if we choose to embrace pride, this is going to be some of the things that we're going to encounter in life. And so there's a serious problem with pride, because like I said, it's really easy to see in someone else. And when you see pride in another person's life, it's so easy to say, well, that person, they're just a jerk, right? But when pride surfaces in your life, you kind of want to justify it, don't you? Because when it's in your life, you're like, well, no, I just have a healthy self-esteem. That's all it is. Right? Like, no, I mean, I'm just very confident. And and so at one level, I think we'll flat out understand some of the things we're looking at today and say, well, of course, pride is wrong. But I want to challenge us to go even deeper because I want you to understand some things that pride, even the the pride that we would say, well, isn't there a healthy kind of pride? There's not. It's actually all really bad. And we're going to unpack that together. So let's start off. Let's jump in there in your message notes, the problem with pride. And so here's the first one. The The first problem with pride is this. Pride is wrong. In case you hadn't been clued into that yet. Pride is wrong. Look at what it says, Proverbs 21 4. It says this. Haughty eyes. Now, let me just clarify that. That doesn't mean like you have attractive eyes. Like, ooh, your eyes are hot. That's not what it's talking about. Haughty eyes means that you have eyes only for yourself. So haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are what? Sin. And now in the the wisdom literature, whenever it talks about the lamp, the lamp of the wicked or the lamp of the righteous, it's talking about somebody that's kind of poetic language for their life. And so somebody who embraces pride as a way of life, what this proverb is wanting us to understand is that that's sin. It's not a good thing. And and here's why. Because pride is ultimately self-centeredness. Pride is about thinking that I am all that. It's about looking at my own greatness and saying, awesome. And so pride is ultimately a form of misplaced worship. Because I'm setting my greatness above the one who is great. I'm setting my greatness over and above God's greatness. And when we do that, we are setting ourselves up in opposition to him. You see this illustrated really well in the Bible in the life of a man named Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. The reference is there on your notes if you want to read it at some point. But Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king of the nation of Babylon. He, he's just conquered nation after nation. His nation has conquered even God's people as they rebelled against him. And so he's taken some of the, the Israelites captive and one of those is a man named Daniel. And so in Daniel chapter 4... We find that Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream, and in this dream, he has this vision of this tree that's grown to magnificent stature, and it casts shadow for all the land, and all the animals are flocking to its greatness. And in the dream, an angelic being comes down and says, take the the kingdom away, and so the tree is cut down, and the stump is bound. And Nebuchadnezzar wakes up from this dream just terrified because it was so visceral, so real, and so he calls Daniel, Daniel, tell me what this dream means. And Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, Nebuchadnezzar, I wish this was about one of your enemies and not about you, because what this dream means is that God is going to take your kingdom away from you, and you're going to live like a wild person for a season of life until you acknowledge that heaven rules. And so Nebuchadnezzar is given this warning from heaven, hey man, you're not all that, And yet a year goes by, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't pay attention to the dream. And so one night, a year later, he's standing on the roof of his palace, looking at the great city of Babylon, and he starts to say, isn't this the great Babylon that I have created for my own majesty, by my own power and glory? And while the words are still on his lips, a voice from heaven comes and says, nope. (laughs) And he's struck dumb. And by that, I don't mean mute. I mean, he's struck dumb like an idiot. And he roams like a wild animal for a season of life until there's a point in his life where he looks up to heaven and acknowledges who God is. And it's not until that moment then that his kingdom is restored to him until he acknowledges that heaven rules. And so when we, when we embrace pride as a way of life, you see this in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. It sets us up against God. It sets us up in opposition to God. Look at what it says here, Proverbs sixteen five. Some heavy words, some strong words. It says this, The Lord detests all the proud of, of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. And so one of the problems with pride is that it's wrong. It sets us up in opposition to God. But here's another problem with pride that we're going to see the Proverbs help us understand. Is that not only is it wrong, pride leads to conflicts. Look at what it says there, Proverbs thirteen ten: Pride only breeds quarrels. But wisdom is found in, the, in those who take advice. And now notice what it says. Pride only breeds quarrels. The only thing that pride leads to in our life is quarrels. And here's why. Think about this. Two people who think that they are both the center of the universe come into collision with one another. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, there's going to be a clash of egos. See, it's the, the humble person who's willing to take advice from someone, but the, the people with egos are going to have a problem. And, and here's why that pride leads to conflict. So when we replaced God as the center of the universe, as the center of our existence, when we rebelled against him, when we rejected him as a race... It left a void within the very nature of who we are as people, a void that God had created in us to be known by him, to experience him, that only God would be great enough to fill. But when we rejected him as God, we were left with a vacancy within us, an emptiness. And now we try to fill that with all sorts of things, and so oftentimes we try to fill that with ourself, our own greatness, but we can't do it because you and I are not great enough to fill that void. Only God is. And so we try, and we try, and we try, and somewhere deep within us, we know it doesn't work, but we keep trying because it's the only alternative we have, and so we try to make ourselves greater in our own eyes. We try to inflate ourselves to fill that void, but we know it doesn't work, and the more you try to do it, the greater you think you can become in your own eyes, the more threatened you become by other people. Because you realize that this greatness can't fulfill you, but you have to try. And so someone else comes in who you perceive to be good at something or you perceive to have greatness in their own ways. And they're a threat to you because they now threaten your own greatness. I mean, have you ever experienced that at work or someone someone comes into your job situation and they're really good at what they do and everyone's excited to have them on the team and you're like, I hope they get fired. Because <laughs> they're taking the glory from me, right? We're easily threatened by pride. A good friend of mine, he's a pastor down in San Diego. And uh, when I was living down there, we were friends, and we'd be hanging out a lot. And prior to becoming a follower of Christ, back in his old life, he lived in the north, north, uh, northern California, and he was involved with some gangs up there. And so, and I didn't know that. I didn't know that part of his life. And so one day we were just hanging out, and I just said, "Hey, would you just kind of tell me what life was like for you back then? Like, what what was your goal? What was the purpose of living before you became Christ? Because I only know you know you're like a gentle bear of a man. But what was life like for you back then?" And he just stops and he gives me this look. And I'm like, I'm, I'm only asking you to tell me, not show me, right? Like, like There's just like this, this, this look came on his demeanor. And he said, like, back then I only had one goal. When I was hanging out with my crew, wherever we would go, whatever club we were at, whatever bar we were at, wherever we found ourselves, my one goal was this. It was to go and find the biggest and baddest guy from the other side and to go up to him and beat him down. And he said, Because if I could do that, if I could beat him down, I would take away his pride and it would elevate my status. And I just said, I'm so glad I know you now. (laughs) And I think about that in my life, I've never beaten someone down to increase my own greatness, but I have sure cut the legs out from under someone, right? I've thrown people under the bus. And here's something interesting to understand about pride that pride is not a mark of confidence. Pride is a sign of deep insecurity. And it's so easily threatened. And so we have to create a bigger persona of ourselves and push others down. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 9. I want you to see something funny in Jesus' first followers. I love reading about the disciples because they give me hope. In Mark 9, we see this idea of pride leading to conflict Mark 9, verse 33, Jesus and his men had been kind of doing a ministry tour, and so they're kind of heading back to home base for for a season, and so uh, they were having a discussion on the road. And so Mark 9, 33, it says this, they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? So they've been walking around together, and uh, as they've been kind of traveling, they were having this discussion amongst themselves and this argument. And now here's the thing. Jesus knows what they're talking about. He's Jesus. But he's just kind of asking them the question. And look at verse 34. But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Doesn't that give you hope? Like if these guys can, like maybe I have a chance, right? But I love this. I mean, here they are. They're walking with Jesus. The one who is the greatest, arguing amongst themselves about who they think is the greatest. And to be sure, they don't have a clue yet fully who Jesus is. I mean, this is before the cross. This is before the resurrection, before they see him and like, oh, that's who you are. But at least they still have some understanding. They believe he's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one who's come to deliver them. So they have a sense that it's not me, it's you. And yet while they walk with Jesus, they're arguing with one another about who they think is the greatest. And so Jesus wants to have a come-to-Jesus talk with them. And so verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And Jesus begins to unpack for them the values of his kingdom come like, look, in this world, you've been living wrong side up for so long that you don't have a clue of how it's supposed to be. And so I've come to turn your world upside down and to finally make it right side up. And in my kingdom, it's totally different than the way the world is. If you want to be great, you serve. If you want to be first, you be last. And the values of Jesus' kingdom are radically different than the values of this world. And so pride leads to conflict. And think how pathetic that is as followers of Christ— And when you and I oftentimes get in conflict, it's because somehow you offended me or you upset me. And so part of the reason we may get in conflict at times on the journey is because I will say in my head, who do you think you are to talk to me or treat me like that? Subtitles, I'm too great for you to do that to me. And as followers of Christ, we're supposed to be following the one whom we claim is the greatest, and yet you and I still get into petty conflicts because of our pride. Think how pathetic that is. So pride is wrong. Pride leads to conflict. Here's another problem with pride. Pride leads to downfall. Look at Proverbs 16, 18. It says this, pride goes before what? Destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. And so we think pride makes us feel strong, pride makes us feel powerful, but it's setting ourselves up for failure. Here's a couple reasons why. One we've already looked at, pride sets us up in opposition to God. Remember Proverbs 16, 15, we just looked at it. The Lord detests the proud of heart. And so when you and I get so full of ourselves and caught up in our own greatness, we're setting ourselves up in opposition to God because God is too good to let us think something about ourselves that's not true which means that God in his goodness will lay you out in order to wake you up to the truth and reality of life, of who you are and who he is. So if you ever find yourself knocked on your back and God has laid you out, the first thing you should say is thank you. Thank you that you are too good to let me continue thinking those things. Here's another reason why pride will lead to a fall, not only because it sets us up in opposition to God. Pride will lead to a fall because you and I, when we embrace pride, it's ultimately misplaced confidence. And now here's the thing. Confidence is a good thing. Confidence is healthy. And yet I want to I wrestle with you for a minute in this because this is where some of us might want to push back and say, well, isn't a little pride good though? I mean, a little bit of pride isn't that healthy in my life? And here's what I want you to understand. No, it's not if we understand what the Proverbs are telling us. And so pride is ultimately misplaced confidence. And yes, confidence is good. Confidence is a healthy thing. But if you are putting your confidence in the wrong thing, you're setting yourself up for failure. And here's why. Confidence and identity are closely linked. And so when I am putting my confidence merely in myself, I'm putting my confidence in my own abilities. And now my identity gets wrapped up in those abilities. And yet here's the problem. My abilities, your abilities, they all have a shelf life. Your strength, your beauty, your intellect will all one day fade and fail you at some point in life. And when that day comes, you will face an identity crisis because you thought that which made you great suddenly fails you. Your abilities aren't there. Your confidence in yourself falls short and your identity crumbles. And we have have a term for that in our culture. You know what we call that? Midlife crisis (laughs) because we've lived long enough to realize that my abilities are not what they once were or the abilities I put so much hope in have not gotten me the results I wanted. And suddenly my identity starts to spiral and spin. And here's what we need to understand is that God did not design life for us to place our confidence in ourselves. He designed life for us to place our confidence in him, the one whose strength and beauty and intellect will never fade and never fail us. And as we do life placing our confidence in him, our identity is secure because it's not based upon our own abilities but pride in yourself is misplaced confidence and you may be the best and the brightest for a long run but i guarantee you there will come a day where there will be someone else who is brighter and better than you and when that day comes you're going to fall hard and fast and so here's some of the problems with pride and when you and i choose to embrace pride and we get caught up in pride, it does incredible damage in life. It does damage in our relationship with God because it sets us up in opposition to him. It does damage to our relationships with one another because I have no room for someone like you in my life. And it ultimately does damage even to my own sense of identity. And so if pride is the problem, then we have to be willing to look at the solution to pride and that is learning to embrace humility. And now if pride involves having an overinflated sense of self and being utterly consumed of myself, humility is radically different. This is what humility is. Humility is having an accurate view of yourself and then not being consumed with yourself. Here's what I mean. Humility doesn't mean, oh, I'm not good at anything. Look at me. You know, that's not humility. That's like false pride or negative pride or dark pride. Humility is being able to say, here are the things in life that I'm good at, but I'm not taken with myself in those areas. And humility is being able to say about myself, having an accurate view of myself, here are the things in life that I am not good at, but I'm not defeated by those things because it's not about me anymore. And as we learn to embrace humility, there's an incredible freedom that comes in realizing that I can have an accurate view of myself, and it doesn't matter what I think, ultimately, because it's not about me. Humility is not about thinking of yourself less than you are. It's about thinking less about yourself. And humility will always have relational implications, In the same way pride has relational implications, humility will have relational implications. Humility will impact our relationship with God, it will impact our relationships with one another, and it will ultimately impact even our own sense of identity. And so let's start to unpack this a little bit. There on your notes, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, look at what Peter has to say about humility here. Peter writes this, he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Humility and here's something important to understand about humility. Humility is a choice. So Peter says, "Clothe yourselves with humility, wrap yourselves up with this." Humility is a choice. And then look what he says, "So clothe yourselves with humility, look at toward one another." See the relational implication of humility? It's something that I demonstrate towards other people. And here's why. And now Peter quotes from Proverbs 3:34, "Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See the relational impact that humility has in your walk with God? And so what's Peter's advice? Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. What a beautiful picture, because so often in my life, I'm trying to achieve or obtain my own greatness, and yet what Peter is saying here is you want to achieve the greatness for which you were created? Humble yourselves before God, and then let him lift you up to that place. And so humility is the choice. And yet, how do we do that, right? Because if I struggle with pride in my life, guess what I struggle with embracing in my life? Humility. So let me share with you a few things about how we can begin to do this, how we can embrace humility. And so here's the first thing if we're going to do this. Get over yourself. You're like, that doesn't sound very nice. And yet it's true. Because humility is a choice, which means that you and I have to learn to get out of our own way so we can begin to embrace it. And part of that means that I have to choose to get over myself. Look at these verses here, Proverbs 3, 7 through 8. It says this, Do not be wise in your own eyes. What a great proverb for us to pause on as we're looking at this whole series of what it means to choose wisely and to grow in wisdom. Because I guarantee you, some of us are going to start embracing the things that we're learning in this series, and we're going to grow in wisdom, and we're going to start thinking we're really all that. Look how wise I'm becoming. Look how great I am, right? And, and yet what this proverb says, is, no, don't be wise in your eyes. There's only one person's opinion of you that matters. That's his. So seek to be wise in his terms and his eyes. So do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Proverbs twenty nine twenty three: A man's pride brings him low. But a man of lowly spirits Gains honor. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And then look at what Jesus says about this in Matthew 5, 3. This is the the starting of his famous teaching, that sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus just unpacks so much of what it means to follow him and live life the way God designed it for us. And so as Jesus starts, he gives a series of things that that this is what it means to live the blessed life. If you want to live a life that's blessed, embrace these things. And so the first thing Jesus says about that is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's when you and I come into that reality that, God, on my own, I'm not. But, God, with you, I can. So, God, I humble myself before you. God, I need what you are offering me in this life. Because God gives grace to the humble. And what I need in my life more than anything is God to give me his grace. And so Jesus starts us off by saying that. There's this parable that Jesus gives us to those of us who are wrestling with getting over ourselves. So if you have your Bible, go over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. This is what it says. To some who were what? Confident, which is a good thing, but misplaced confidence is a bad thing. So to some who were confident in their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. And so here's how you know when your confidence isn't a healthy confidence, when your confidence is in the wrong thing, because you will start looking down on other people. Whenever you and I are confident in our own righteousness, our own goodness, hey, look how great I am, one of the results is that we look down on other people. When you're confident in the righteousness that God has given you through Jesus, it produces humility, and you realize we're all on the same playing field. It's all about the cross. It's not about me anymore. And so for those of us who wrestle with this, who have misplaced confidence, who might think that we're all that, who need to learn to get over ourselves, Jesus has a story for us. Verse 10, he says, Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And so now in, in, in this time in, in, in history, in first century Judaism, you would have had kind of two spectrums of people. And so Jesus wants to create a dichotomy to help us understand something. And so if you were to ask the Jews in Jesus' day, hey, who would be considered a good Jewish man? They would have easily said, oh, a Pharisee. That's one of like, the, the most religious strict people there is. Like they dot every T, they cross every I, you know, they're really good. Or the opposite of what I just said, but you know, they're really good. <laughs> and now if we were to ask, okay, well then who would be somebody who is bad they would have said, oh, that's easy, probably a prostitute or like a tax collector. Because in Jesus' day, a tax collector was the Jewish person who had sold out his own countrymen to the oppressive Roman rulers. And so he was taxing them to pay their oppressors, and he was oftentimes overtaxing them so he could pocket the benefits. And so Jesus has two men come to the temple to pray, one whom everyone would look at as a good man, and one whom everyone would look at as scum. And so verse 11, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. So that might be a clue of what not to do. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. Two radically different prayers, right? Now look at what Jesus says about this, verse 14. He says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Now, this would have blown everyone's mind when they heard this story because they thought if anyone would have left the temple justified before God, it would have been the the guy that was confident in his own righteousness, the hyper religious guy, not this sinner. And yet, here's why. Look at what Jesus says. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so if you and I want to begin to experience the life that God wants us to lead, wants to lead us into, we have to learn to get over ourselves. We have to learn to humble ourselves so that he will be the one who lifts us up. So get over yourself, because humility is a choice. Here's something else then that will help you and I learn to do this to embrace humility is this. We need to begin to do this. We need need to begin to practice putting others first. Look how Paul puts this in Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Paul says this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So there's a great pause. Hey, should I do this or not? Well, is it all about you and is it for your own vanity? Yeah, don't do it. (laughs) That's what he says. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And I struggle with that because I think if he had said consider others as much as you consider yourself, I might have had a chance because I think I'm good enough to do that, but I'm probably giving myself too much credit, right? But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each one of you, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And so we look to Jesus to be the one to show us what this looks like. What does it look like to practice putting others first? Lord, how did you live? How did you treat us? What was your attitude towards us? If, you have, if your Bibles open again, go to the right again to the book of John, John 13. Paul tells us that we should have the attitude of Jesus. So we look to Jesus to show us what this looks like, to practice putting others first, to embrace humility. And so in John 13, you have the story where Jesus and his men are sitting down to have their last dinner together, what we've called the Last Supper. They're celebrating Passover together. And so here on this night, Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. And yet John tells us at the beginning of John 13 that having loved them to the end, Jesus now shows them the full extent of his love. See, he's not focused on himself. He's focused on his men. And in this time, after they're done eating dinner, John tells us that Jesus got up. He took off his outer robe. He picked up a bowl of water and a towel. And he starts to go around to each of his men and he begins to wash their feet. And in Jesus' day, in Jesus' culture, foot washing was a serious kind of thing that you would do for someone. It was an act of, of hospitality. See, back in that day, they didn't have roads like we do. They didn't have shoes like we do, although sometimes we don't always wear shoes. But, you know, they didn't have all that. In Jesus' day, you'd walk on dirt roads, and so you'd come to somebody's house, and oftentimes as a sign of courtesy, they'd give you water so you could wash your feet. Now, if you were wealthy enough and you had servants, when your guests came over, you would have one of your servants wash their feet as a sign of hospitality. And here's how you knew where you were at in the pecking order. If you were a servant and you were assigned foot washing, you're on the bottom rung. So the lowest of the low in that day was the one who would wash someone's feet. And so here's what's interesting. They've all come together for one of their high holy days, to celebrate the Passover together, and nobody's feet have been washed. Why do you think that is? Because these were the same guys who were arguing on the road about who was the greatest. I'm not washing your feet. I mean, I'm greater than you, right? That's these guys. And so then here's Jesus who gets up, and he takes on the lowest role in that culture. And he goes around to each one of his men, and he begins to wash their feet. And when he's done, look at what he says to them. Verse 12, John 13, 12. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so Paul says our attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, and Jesus shows us what it looks like to practice putting others first. And he says that not only is this a sign of humility, he says you're going to be blessed if you do this. In our culture today, we don't wash people's feet. That's not what we do. But what do you think it looks like to take the the role of putting someone else first, of putting others before you? And if we're going to embrace humility in this area, I think what that means for you and I is that we have to begin to intentionally inconvenience ourselves for the sake of someone else intentionally inconvenience yourself for the sake of someone else. So that means you have to practice putting someone first. And so I would encourage you to start by doing this with simple things in life. As you go about life, try doing these things. When you're standing in line at the grocery store and you see the person get in line behind you and they have a cart full of stuff, let them go first. Well, no, I mean, it's the one who has the least things. They get to go first, right? And I have least, so therefore I have the right to go first, right? I'm standing in line in front of them. I know, just, I'm just saying, practice putting others first. Let them go first. And they look at you and they're doing the math. Why? What? what? And you're like, I'm just trying to figure some stuff out in my life. Go ahead. <laughs> when I was in my young 20s, uh, single, hanging out with all of my group of friends, whenever we'd go someplace, I just made this mental choice, this conscious decision that whenever we'd all pile into the car, I would always call backseat middle. Because what, what's the best seat if you're not driving? The best seat is shotgun, right? Like, remember all the stupid games we used to play? No, I called it first. Well, it doesn't count until you're in the parking lot, right? No, no, well, I called shotgun. Well, no, not until you see the car, right? Like, no, we got to run and touch the car, right? And so, whenever we got into the parking lot and then games would apply, I'd be like, Back seat, middle. And they'd look at me like, what's your problem? And, you know, and I never would be like, because I'm so humble, guys, right? It was just like, it was something that I was trying to do to develop this in my life, because guess what I struggle with in life? Practice doing simple things. When you're you're jockeying for that really good parking spot and you see the guy coming down, you know, put the signal on so you can give it to him. But here's the thing. Practice it in simple things so you can begin to develop a habit of humility so you can start to do it in the difficult things. And here's what I mean by the difficult things. What if in humility, what if in a desire to put others first, what if considering others better than yourself, what if looking not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others, you decided to start spending less so you can give more? Now, I know I'm talking to a bunch of Americans. And we are a culture of affluence and excess. And so guess what an issue in our life is going to be? So this is going to be a hard thing for us if we're going to really embrace this what would it look like if you made a conscious decision in how you spent money and you decided that in my budget for food, I'm going to choose to buy less or I'm going to buy generic or the clothes that I buy, I don't care about name brand anymore. I'm just going to get clothes that fit for me. And then, and then in doing that, I will have more money that I can give and spend for someone else. So I'm not only going to try and feed myself, I'm going to try and feed somebody else. I'm not only going to put clothes on my own back, I'm going to put clothes on someone else's back. That's a hard thing. What if it looked like this, you chose to give up your time to do the fun things you love so that you can use that time to serve other people? See, but we gotta practice this, right? And so you may not be able to do the hard things today, so start doing the simple things today so you can develop that habit of humility in your life. And if letting someone go in front of you in the grocery store is a hard thing, well then ramp it down until you find out what that thing is. (laughs) And work your way up to that point. But men and women, we are never more like Jesus than when we are loving others like he has loved us. And so here's a great prayer in your life. Lord, what was your attitude towards me? Now help me to do the same for others. And the beautiful thing about doing this is that not only will this benefit other people in this world, it will free you from being consumed with yourself. So practice putting others first. And then finally, this last idea, if we're going to begin to embrace humility, is not only get over yourself, not only practice putting others first, but focus or refocus on Jesus. As we do this, as you and I begin to take the focus off ourselves and we begin to focus or refocus on Jesus, he begins to reorient our lives around him, the one who was created to be the center of our existence. And as we do this, he brings us back into relational alignment with him. And he begins to free us from the burden of having to try to be the center of our own existence. And we begin to discover the freedom of belonging to him. And one of the greatest things that you can do to help you focus on Jesus is to be intentional about reflecting on what he has done for you. Reflecting on what he has done for you in this life. There's this story that Luke tells us in Luke, Luke chapter 7. It's there in your notes if you want to read it later. But there's this time where early on in Jesus' ministry when he was still kind of growing in popularity before he was starting to get in trouble with the religious leaders, this man named Simon, a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders in his day, invites Jesus over to have dinner at his house. And so Jesus comes to have dinner at his house. And, and back in that day, like, they don't have TV. They don't have entertainment like we do. So oftentimes you'd have, like, the, the popular people, the celebrities in your day kind of coming together and hanging out. And it was very customary for people to just kind of come and hang out at the house, but you can't eat at the party. So here's what's going on. So, so Simon, who's prominent in his, his city and his area, invites Jesus, who everyone's hearing about. And so they're having dinner together. And so people have come to watch and see what's going on. And so while they're having dinner, Luke tells us that a woman who is known in that community for being a sinner, crashes the party. And she walks up to where Jesus is and she goes down at his feet And you have to understand that you're not sitting at chairs like we do. You're leaning at a table. Your feet are out behind you as you're reclining into the table having dinner together. So she comes up to to where he's at. She comes to his feet. She gets down and she begins to weep on his feet and to wash his feet with her tears and to dry his feet with her hair. And then she begins to kiss his feet. And then she takes out this expensive jar of perfume and she puts it on his feet. And Luke tells us that Simon's thinking to himself about Jesus. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman this is, that she is a sinner. And then Jesus being Jesus knows what's going on in Simon's head. And so he asked Simon a question. Simon, I have a question for you. Two men owed money to the same lender. One owed 500 days worth of wages. The other owed 50 days worth of wages. Neither of them had the means or the ability to repay the lender. So the lender took pity on both. The lender forgave the debt of both of them. Which one do you think is going to love him more? Simon may be a jerk, but he's not an idiot. He says, well, I suppose the one who had the greater debt. And then Jesus says to Simon, Simon, you see this woman? When I entered your house, you did not give me water to wash my feet but she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair and you learn something about simon in that moment that simon doesn't care about jesus jesus is just to increase his own status in the day because if he cared about jesus he would have at least given him water to wash his feet so he's already disrespecting jesus and then jesus says simon you did not greet me with a kiss but from the time i've been here she has not stopped kissing my feet Again, it would have been culturally acceptable that the way you greet someone is to greet them with a kiss, and so Simon doesn't even give Jesus the basic courtesies of the day. And then Jesus says, Simon, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has poured perfume on my feet. See, in that day, you would would anoint a king or a prophet with oil as a sign of who they were, and so what Jesus is saying is, Simon, you don't have a clue who I am, but she gets me. And so he says to Simon, I tell you that her many sins are forgiven because she has loved much, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And you see this contrast of two people who are with Jesus, and one of them gets him and one of them doesn't. And here's Simon who is not focused on Jesus. He doesn't care about Jesus. All Simon is focused on is himself and increasing his own status. And yet here is this woman who totally gets Jesus, and she is completely focused on him because he is the one who has changed her status. And so we have to choose as we look to Jesus, Jesus, am I going to focus on you or am I going to focus on myself? And am I going to reflect on who you are and what you have done for me? And when we get that, when we get Jesus, when we understand the sacrifice he's made, the forgiveness that he offers us, we come to him, we focus on him, and we realize there's no more room for pride in my life. Because I don't have to fill myself with him because he has filled me with his love. And I have been set free. It's one of the reasons why we celebrate communion. Because when we come to the table, we come to the one who has given his life for us. When we come to the table, we come to the one who says it's not about you anymore. So that's what we're gonna do right now. As we seek to grow in this, as we seek to embrace humility, the band's gonna come out and we're gonna go into a time of worship and we're gonna go into a time of communion together. And when Jesus was having that last supper with his men, he took some of the elements from the table these things that have been a part of their sacred heritage of the Passover. And he says, hey, these things that we've celebrated for so long are now, are now about me. It's always only ever been about me. And so he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And he takes the wine and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul tells us that Jesus said that we are to do this in remembrance of him. Men and women, that's the beauty of celebrating communion because it's something Jesus gave us to help us remember it's not about us anymore. And so when we come to the tables, we can go and focus on him. We can go before him and we can lay our pride down at his feet and we can say, Jesus, take this burden and free me to live the life that you've called me to live. Fill me with your love. Fulfill me so that I can begin to walk with you in humility and learn to love like you. And so let me pray. And then after this prayer, I want to invite you to go to the tables. And, And the tables are for you. If you're a follower of Christ, the tables are for you today. But I want to encourage you to go into this time focusing on him by reflecting on what he's done for you. Men and women, never forget who you would be without him. But never forget who you are now because of him. Because he's set you free. Let's pray. Lord, we come into this time, and God, for some of us in this moment, we need to swallow our pride, we need to humble ourselves before you, and Lord, we thank you that you've given us this gift of communion to remind ourselves of you, that it's not about us anymore, and so would you meet with us in this moment? God, would you help us to understand what you've done for us through Jesus? Jesus, would you help us understand what you have done for us? Would we reflect on that so that we could focus on you, so that we would be filled with your love, that we would understand the depths of your forgiveness, that we have been forgiven much, which means we can now love much. And so we come into your presence in this time and we say thank you. Thank you that it's not about us anymore. That you've come to free us. And so Lord, we come before you in this time to get over ourselves. To focus on you. Amen. Isn't that the truth? that he is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has lifted us up. Never forget that. I don't care how great you think you are. You will never become as great as he can make you because he's going to lift you up to the greatness you were created for. So embrace humility this week the best you can. Asking for his help. Get over yourself. Put others first. Focus on him. And then you will experience him blessing you as you realize it's not about you anymore. It's an incredible freedom that comes in that. So God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next weekend. Bye-bye. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.